Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. The future does not belong to globalists. The future belongs to patriots. So said President Donald Trump in a speech to the United Nations. It was another example of America, once the main proponent of the international organization, taking a step back from the global spotlight. The UN was created out of a quest for peace and unity in the wake of World War II. In some ways, it exceeded expectations. There's been no Third World War and its membership has grown to 193 countries. But the UN is struggling. Its peacekeeping roles have come in for criticism as widely ineffective, and many of its structures designed to provide help internationally, such as the World Health Organization, are also in the eye of the critical storm. You're listening to The Economist Asks. I'm Anne McElvoy. And this week, as we approach the 75th anniversary of the signing of the UN's founding charter, we're asking, does the United Nations still work? My guest is Antonio Guterres, who's been Secretary General of the United Nations since 2017. Due to the pandemic, Mr Guterres spoke to us from his home over a poor line, so we do beg your patience with the quality of the recording, and thank you for continuing to tune in at this difficult time. Before his appointment to the UN, Mr Guterres served as Prime Minister of Portugal from 1995 to 2002, where his oratorical skills earned him the name the Talking Pickaxe. He was instrumental in brokering an end to the long-running occupation of East Timor by Indonesian troops, and he served as United Nations High Commissioner for Refugees, heading one of the world's foremost humanitarian organisations. Antonio Guterres, welcome to The Economist Asks. It's a great pleasure to be with you. And also with us is Daniel Franklin, The Economist's diplomatic editor. He's written a special report on the UN at 75 in this week's Economist. Hello, Daniel. Hello, Anne. So, Mr Guterres, the UN turns 75 at a moment of multiple crises and new challenges. You said yourself that these are dark days. How would you define the biggest challenges? We have uh, two kinds of challenges. One is the fact we are an intergovernmental organization. And as an intergovernmental organization, it depends on the capacity of member states to come together, especially when we have such dramatic challenges as the COVID-19 or climate change or the impact of new technologies in our economies and our societies. And the truth is that we have now a very dysfunctional relationship namely among the three biggest powers. And that dysfunctional relationship makes it very difficult for the Security Council to take adequate decisions in relation to the major crisis we face. So this is one problem that is related to the nature of the organization. The other challenge is uh, the need to be able to make the organization more nimble, more effective, more cost-effective, 
to reform the organization and to be able to improve the way we uh, deliver humanitarian aid, the way we have peacekeeping operations on the ground, the way we protect human rights, the way we are able to mobilize the international community in relation to climate change, to gender equality. And uh, we have devoted ourselves very strongly to the reform, the internal reform of the organization. I think we made a lot of progress on that. But of course, there is still a long way to go. Daniel, over to you. If you take your first point that the relationship between three major powers is dysfunctional, well, this is hardly new for the United Nations. What makes this different from if you take the broad sweep of 75 years of, of the United Nations, how has this changed? I think the present pattern is relatively new. Uh, we had, of course, the Cold War, and the Cold War had its rules. There were two superpowers, essentially. Those two superpowers were confronting each other in many aspects, but to a certain extent, Everything was predictable. Then we had a period of American supremacy in the 90s. I was Prime Minister of Portugal. Uh, I remember that when we had the crisis of East Timor, the question for an intervention in East Timor was to convince the President of the United States that that was necessary. The moment the President of the United States became convinced that that was necessary, the Security Council voted unanimously, uh, Australia was able to lead the operation, Indonesia accepted it, so things moved very quickly. Now it's much more messy. We are moving into a more multipolar world. It's a, it's a chaotic world. And then predictability became the name of the game. And what we see more and more is that middle-sized powers feel that they are entitled to do whatever they want. And there is no way to limit the initiatives that they might have. And some of them linking to conflict or to the escalation of conflict. If you see a situation like Libya today, you see lots of countries involved in that situation, and uh, it is much more difficult than in the times of the Cold War or in the 90s. It's much more difficult to create an international environment in which the spoilers are forced to play by the rules. How much more difficult is it made by the fact that America has uh, stepped back to some extent from the world? We already saw this under President Obama nation building at home. But now we see this even more with Donald Trump, who is, for example, pulling America out of the World Health Organization. Can the UN function without an engaged America? I'm a strong believer that the United States, who remains the biggest economic and military power in the world, is uh, absolutely essential for international organizations uh, to operate uh, adequately. I'm a strong supporter of the engagement of the U.S. in international affairs. I believe that engagement is necessary. Of course, in the 90s, the U.S. was, to a certain extent, alone. And so uh, the influence of the United States was overwhelming. Today, things are more balanced. But I don't think the international community can live without a strong engagement of the United States in international affairs. If we want uh, to promote a number of key values, uh, democracy, human rights and others, where I believe the function of the United States would be extremely, extremely important. But you're very careful in how you treat uh, President Donald Trump, for example. You may be critical of American policy. You never criticise him by name. Is that a deliberate strategy? I think it's very important to clearly assert principles. It's very important to express our disagreement with policies. But uh, I also do not believe that uh, in international politics it's good to enter into personal confrontations with whoever. That leads nowhere. And I think I have a major responsibility to preserve the United Nations and to preserve a functional relationship with all the key partners of the United Nations, including, obviously, the United States. And what about the other major powers? First of all, China. You've been 
criticised for not speaking up loudly enough on human rights, for example, with China. How do you handle this question of China having a very different view of human rights than um, the views that are... It is fair to say that I have not done so. Uh, Remember the most spoken question uh, when we talk about human rights uh, in relation to China is, of course, the Uyghur question. I had the occasion to discuss it several times with the Chinese authorities to make it public and to clearly assert that human rights need to be fully respected there. And more than that, that uh, in situations where you have a minority, it is absolutely essential that all communities feel that their identity is respected and at the same time that they are recognized as part of the community as a whole. I've done it uh, several times and again. I mean, it's not the fact that I insult a country or a personality that, in my opinion, leads anywhere. What is important is to be clear, asserting the principles. And for me, those principles are clear. And, of course, uh, we have a situation today in the world where the human rights agenda is becoming more and more difficult because, in many circumstances, an inadequate understanding of national sovereignty has undermined the capacity to have adequate projection of the human rights agenda in the world. And let's not forget Russia, the other of the three powers that you mentioned. It is asserting itself more and more. It's vetoing many UN Security Council resolutions. So how do you handle that disruptive behaviour and get towards a Security Council with Russia on it that can actually agree to things? Our strategy is simple, is to tell the truth and to make the proposals that make sense independently of sometimes being in opposition in relation to the positions of the Russian Federation. Just to give you an example, we have been very clear in recent times asking for cross-border humanitarian aid to be possible in relation to Syria. And so this has been a bone of contention in relation to the Russian Federation in several moments. At the same time, it's true to recognize that the Russian Federation put pressure on the Syrian government to allow for the Constitutional Committee to move forward. But as I said, tell the truth, control the damage where there is damage to control, but also seize the opportunities that can exist in order to make things move in the right direction. There are some concerns about the role of the Security Council, that it's been missing in action on really the very big stuff that it is supposed to handle. I mean, Russia has brazenly grabbed a piece of Ukraine. China has occupied disputed territories in the South China Sea. These are exactly the kind of areas where we would expect the Security Council to be active. Has it become too slow? And is it not being challenged enough to do the job it's there to do? Well, the Security Council is not an abstract entity. It is an entity with member states, and five of those member states have a veto right. And we know that whenever there is a very serious question related to the Israeli-Palestinian question, Americans will veto. We know that there is a a serious question related to the Ukraine or to Syria, the Russians will veto. And we know that there is something on the South China Sea or equivalent to China will probably veto. So we know that this is the reality. But I also think that the UN is much more than security council. The UN uh, has a huge uh, activity in the world that is sometimes ignored. The humanitarian action of the UN, all of the international humanitarian aid in the world is channeled through the UN. Uh, We recently launched a a global humanitarian response package for the COVID-19 to uh, support 110 million people in 64 countries. 
And these on top of all the other humanitarian action we are providing. So these are things that people sometimes forget, that independently of the Security Council are moving on and that have a huge impact for the good of the world. I suppose I wondered whether, in your view, the UN was pivoting towards judging itself by its successes in terms of humanitarian relief, refugee crisis and the other things that it does in that sphere, World Health Organization, etc., and less about security. No, but uh, we are, at the present moment, deeply engaged in Yemen, trying to bring together the parties to the conflict uh, to reach an agreement. Uh, I myself have been on the phone with the key actors of the conflict and with the regional powers and the global powers for that. Uh, our objective is to have a global ceasefire in Yemen, a set of confidence-building measures, relation namely to the airports, ports, and to the payment of salaries, and the beginning of serious, peaceful political negotiations to end the conflict. We are doing the same, very actively engaged in supporting the peace process in Afghanistan. We are extremely engaged in Libya, and it must, I must tell you it's the biggest frustration of them all, because where the spoilers are constantly undermining the chance of a ceasefire uh, in that context. But at the same time in Syria, I think it's fair to recognize that we have been able uh, to bring together the parties, even in, it's, it's very difficult to make progress, but the Constitutional Committee was created at the same time in several African uh, situations of conflict, uh, be it in South Sudan, be it in Sudan, be it in Central African Republic. Progress has been made in relation to peace uh, between governments and different tribal groups, between different uh, ethnic groups, and uh, that was an achievement of the UN diplomacy. Now, the truth is, if we had a United Security Council, if we had a functional relationship among the superpowers, then, of course, our action could be much more successful. Daniel. So if you come back to that and the question of the global ceasefire that you called in response to COVID-19 and the Security Council has failed even to manage to muster a resolution on that because of its deep divisions, particularly between China and America, how much has that hindered your efforts on the ground, that you haven't had the backing of the Security Council? It has indeed reduced our capacity to deliver, but uh, uh, we have been quite engaged in the scenarios that I mentioned. Uh, I just spoke with the former Prime Minister of Thailand and he told me that uh, the movement in southern Thailand have accepted the ceasefire. Groups in Cameroon have done the same and we are actively engaged now with the government of Cameroon and with those groups to try to see if there is a way to overcome the terrible situation that occurred in the, the two western provinces of the country. We had the same in Colombia. Unfortunately, the ceasefire that was determined afterwards collapsed. And in a number of other situations, indeed, we have seen the different movements and different governments accepting to enter into dialogue, in some cases for the first time. But obviously, the fact that we do not have the pressure of the Security Council over them makes it much more difficult to overcome the level of mistrust that exists, to overcome the spoilers and their action, and to overcome the legacy of long-lasting conflicts that make, of course, things very difficult. Could I talk about the relationship between China and Russia, which seems in some ways to have restored kind of character that harks back to the Cold War in, in many respects. And I'm wondering what you think the implications of that are. You're diplomatically saying it's, it's obviously good if you get more cooperation between the major players. But in some ways, it's not so good if two of the major world powers who have anti-democratic views or leanings are buddying up together. And I'm thinking about their uh, Russia uh, in Ukraine, its role now going into to Syria on its own terms. 
Doesn't that actually challenge the UN more than it helps it? I think it is clear that at the present moment we have seen a bigger alignment between Russia and China, namely in relation to the Western countries. But uh, that doesn't mean that that will be a permanent situation in relation to, to the future. I think it is... Uh, defined by the present circumstances to a large extent, uh, what is important. When we have a situation like the COVID, when we have a situation like climate change, and independently of different political systems and different uh, attitudes, it would be absolutely important that the most relevant powers would need to come together in relation to these challenges. And I recall that during the Cold War, the Russians and the Americans were able to come together to eradicate variola. So if that was possible at that time, I do believe that pragmatically there is an absolute need to mobilize the whole of the international community for those challenges to be faced positively. I couldn't resist asking you. I mean, I covered the disintegration of Yugoslavia, and that was clearly a case, obviously, at a very, very difficult time uh, for Europe and, and for the UN when we saw really the limits of peacekeeping. And, and if anything, it's probably shaped my view of, of international affairs. It might have sometimes even shaped it too much. So I wondered for you whether, the, as well as the many successes that you can talk about, whether there were failures of the international system and of the UN that give you pause for thought or motivate you to do it differently and do it better. Well, I think uh, that clearly one of the biggest failures uh, we witness is the lack of capacity to uh, effectively prevent many of the conflicts that have occurred and to uh, quickly solve them. We see that because of the power relations in the world and the way they are unclear and uh, the unpredictability of things, that our capacity to prevent and to mediate uh, has been limited. And that, for me, is a big frustration, and I feel it as a failure. I would like to see a ceasefire in Libya, and you can't imagine I, how angry I am when uh, we see it uh, so difficult to obtain, and we see so many actors clearly violating not only the security grounds and resolutions, but their own commitments recently made in Berlin. So that is my biggest frustration and probably the biggest failure that I feel. Can I turn Daniel. you to the future of, of the UN? Here we are at 75. The institutions are, are really quite uh, long in the tooth. They should rightly have some reform to modernise them. But is reform impossible, given these divisions at the top? Well, many reforms have taken place already. Uh, I mean, if you look at peacekeeping, there has been a huge change in the peacekeeping operations, uh, in their capacity, and also in their capacity to reduce casualties. So there are a lot of reforms that are taking place, but of course the key reforms that the international community is of course more interested are the reforms in relation to the work of the key bodies uh, like the Security Council or, or the General Assembly. One of two things will happen. Either we will see the post-enlightenment trends of nationalism, of xenophobia, of racism, of populism, gain the upper ground uh, with each country going its own way. And if that is the case, of course, we will be facing enormous difficulties in relation to multilateralism in general and to the UN in particular. Or there might be a, a conscience of the enormous fragility of uh, our planet and of humanity. And the COVID has demonstrated that fragility. When you are fragile, you must be humble. If you are humble, you recognize the need of solidarity, the need of unity. And that if that is the case, I hope people will recognize the need to have international cooperation seriously, to have multilateral organizations strengthened. We have today a multilateralism without this. Multilateral institutions have very 
little instruments to make their decisions being implemented. So we need more artists in multilateralism and also the appetite to buy it. Then I hope there will be a chance not only to strengthen multilateralism, but to create the conditions to reform it and to make it much more inclusive of what societies are today. Governments need to understand that they do not represent anymore the essential of the political and social life in the world and that they need to give voice to the other entities that exist and have more and more relevance in dealing with world affairs. The business community, the civil society, the local powers, the cities, the regions in the world. So you want governments in some ways to be more humble, perhaps shed some power, but one accusation that's raised against the UN is that it is itself too bureaucratic, too bloated. John Bolton, the former US ambassador to the UN and national security advisor, has held that view, among others. It's not only something that is raised from the right, but it often is. Are you self-critical enough about what the United Nations needs to do to change, as well as what the governments who contribute to it need to do? First of all, I fully agree governments need to be more humble. I was head of a government and I, I felt the need of that humility. And second, one of my main uh, objectives in everything I've been doing is exactly to reduce the bureaucracy in the UN and to make the UN much more nimble and much more effective. And I think we made some meaningful progress on that, even if we have the problem to need the consensus of the member states to introduce uh, those reforms that are necessary, which sometimes is possible, but sometimes difficult, and sometimes we just fail. But uh, I intend to go on, and of course it's a huge transformation also in the system of power in the organization. And that is the reason why, instead of using the 75th anniversary to launch, I would say, a big campaign to promote the UN, we put us exactly in a listening mode, and we launched a huge survey and a huge debate at the global level. And already 222,000 answers of people coming from 193 countries telling what they think about the future, what should be the priorities of international cooperation. We have 5,000 partners in this operation. We want to listen to the people because we recognize that there is today a fundamental lack of trust between people and institutions. And if we want to move forward, we need to rebuild that trust. And we can only rebuild that trust if we are humble and if we listen. But really listening means that you hear things that maybe are sometimes quite uncomfortable and that make you change your mind. And are you hearing things in this great exercise that to some extent surprise you and make you think that the UN needs to change course in some ways? Or is it merely confirming what you wanted to hear about uh, people wanting more international cooperation, wanting you to uh, emphasise a battle against global warming and so on? I don't think that uh, I am surprised, but I think that that creates a even stronger will to change things. What this uh, survey is demonstrating, what the debates are demonstrating, there is a huge request of accountability. Accountability of the UN, accountability of governments, accountability of institutions. And the transparency and accountability are probably the two most important demands that I feel and that I will do my best to put in the centre of our reform concerns in the UN. One of the organisations associated with the United Nations is the World Health Organisation and it's come into quite trenchant criticism and we know that it has divided a lot of opinion. 
about its approach to the COVID epidemic. And it boils down to the charge that it was prepared to get too close to China or perhaps to give China a pass on some decisions and some forms of reporting or underreporting. Did you feel that you learned something from that about the way that major international institutions deal with China that was uncomfortable to hear but maybe needed to be heard? I think that it is clear for me that uh, we will need, uh, in the near future, a serious analysis of how this uh, pandemic emerged and how it spread so out of control and uh, what kind of lessons we take out of it. It has to do with the relationship between the WHO and China, but it has to do with the relationship between WHO and the, the whole international community. One of the problems we have today is that the instruments that WHO has in order uh, to force countries to do things are very, very limited. And I do believe that in questions as serious as public health, we need in the reform of WHO to make sure that WHO has stronger instruments to know exactly what's happening and second, to more directly influence what needs to be done. And I won't reduce that discussion to political questions of this country against that country or whatever. I think it must be a very serious analysis of the relations between the organization and member states, the powers of the organizations, and the capacity of science to prevail in all circumstances over politics in these kind of situations. Daniel. Back to the grand sweep of history. What do you see the next period of the UN heralding? We've got to 75 years. Take us forward to 100 years. There are two dimensions that I believe are absolutely crucial for the intervention of the UN in the future. One is climate change, and the other is a digital world. We have today a situation in which it is clear we live in a lawlessness uh, uh, in the cyberspace. We see artificial intelligence developing at a fantastic uh, path, uh, and we do not see uh, effective mechanisms of governance. It's clear those mechanisms of governance cannot be the governance mechanisms of the past, doesn't make sense to have conventions that take two or three years to negotiate and then the same amount of time to ratify. It needs to bring together the companies, the researchers, the governments, the civil society. I see the UN more and more as a platform in which different stakeholders can come together and in relation to these new challenges of the future, be it climate change, be it the cyberspace, be it uh, the problems of proliferation, they are able to, coming together, find new ways of governance. Government that is more flexible, governance that is, uh, I would say, uh, in some cases, using international law, but in a totally different way uh, in relation to the past. And what I believe is that the UN is better placed than any other organization today in the world to be that platform where different entities, government, civil society, businesses, science, come together and try to find the mechanisms of the governance of the problems of the future. That sounds like a, a very broad and hopeful agenda, but the, the elephant in the room, in some ways, the presidential elephant in the room, is Donald Trump. Can the UN, as you would like to see it develop, move forward with Donald Trump in the presidency in America? as he may indeed still be after November. Never see history based on uh, the circumstances of the moment. I think we need to know what we want. I think we need to fight for what we want. And we need to persevere in uh, the implementation of what we want and never to feel uh, hopeless 
just because the circumstances in each moment are not exactly the ones that you might wish. We need to have a broad picture of what we want for the future, and we need to pursue that with perseverance. And I am in what I can do. I can guarantee that I will not easily give up. You've talked a lot about history and the way to frame things. How would you like to be framed in history? I do not care about it. I have been many things in my life, and when I finish a chapter, I just close everything and forget about it, and I was never worried about what people will say about me. I'm only worried about what I do. The principle of my life has been very strongly the parable of the talents. I was extremely privileged. The way I was born, the way my family provided me with an excellent education, the way I lived in a country that had a revolution that brought democracy when I was 24 years old, and I had the chance to intervene in ways that it would never happen in, in other parts of the world, the way I was offered the possibility to be High Commissioner for Refugees, the most fascinating job of my life. And what I'm trying to do here in the UN is to use, to the extent possible, the talents I have and the capacities I have to do the best I can. Now I'm in this chapter, one day it will be closed and I will move forward. I don't know exactly to do what. Speaking of chapters, I've heard that you are a very keen reader of history books. So I wondered if you might like to give us your lockdown reading list of the history books that have most shaped your approach to the job of Secretary General? I mean, since probably 50 years ago, every evening uh, before going to bed, I read a bit of history. History is my passion. And uh, to be frank, only with a deep knowledge of history, one is able to uh, have a, a solid interpretation of what's happening today. What is on your bedside table with a big bookmark in it uh, for tonight? I'm, I'm reading tomorrow. a very interesting book that uh, demonstrates that with all the problems we have, uh, the history of humankind has been a history of decreasing violence. And a book that is very much, uh, I would say, supporter of what I believe is the biggest contribution of my own part of the world to world civilization, uh, Europe, which is the enlightenment of the values of the enlightenment. Antonio Guterres, thank you very much for joining us. It was a pleasure. And thank you too, Daniel Franklin. Thanks, Anne. And we'd love to know which history books you think provide the best guidance for those trying to resolve turmoil in the world today. Do write to us, radioeconomist.com, or you can tweet us at Economist Radio with any of your thoughts about this or any of our other podcasts. You can find out more about the UN and its future by reading Daniel's piece in The Economist. Head to economist.com slash podcast offer and subscribe for 50% off your first 12 weeks. That's economist.com slash podcast offer. And the link is in the show notes. I'm Anne McElvoy. And in London, this is The Economist. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.